Welcome, everybody, to Dead Talk Live, and tonight we welcome Colton Scrivener. I'm going to tell you in a second what Colton does. Colton, thank you for being our guest. How are you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me on. It is our pleasure, and I've been really looking forward uh, to this interview. Now, let's tell our viewers uh, what it is that you do. You are a PhD candidate. Uh, Before we continue, when uh, do you expect to complete your PhD? Uh, in about two months. Two months. Damn, you're almost there. Now, almost your, there. your fields of study are in anthropology, psychology, sociology, and biology. You've done research work at Oxford University. Uh, you're currently a research fellow at the Institute of uh, Mind and Biology. So to say you have an impressive resume two months leading up to your PhD would be an understatement. Now, with all this studying and on the cusp of getting your PhD, you have chosen to study horror and human behavior towards horror. Uh, Out of all the fields that you could have picked from, why horror? Well, I mean, horror research is really sort of absent. You know, in academia, there aren't a lot of psychologists that study horror. And I think... It's a, it's a really interesting topic because it's sort of a uh, sort of counterintuitive to think that an animal would seek out something that scares it uh, in order to have fun. And so those sort of paradoxes, uh, you know, the paradox of horror, for example, are really interesting to people that study behavioral science. Uh, but for whatever reason, people hadn't really latched on to studying horror. Exactly. And as we discussed uh, in our chat messages before this interview, I briefly mentioned how when the COVID pandemic hit, you would have thought people would have stopped watching horror just because of how bad the real world was. But instead, viewership went up. Right. Uh, why would you say that is? Uh, I mean, there might be a few reasons. So I did a study during the pandemic actually looking at how horror fans were were doing, right? So are they more resilient or less resilient to the, the stresses of, of a novel threat? Uh, and what I found were that horror fans were actually more resilient, uh, more psychologically resilient to the threats of COVID-19. Now, that doesn't mean that they were less likely to get sick or anything mm-hmm. like that. It just means that uh, psychologically they were doing a bit better. Um, so one of the reasons people might seek out scary things during a scary time is that it gives them sort of a sense of control. Um, they can they can approach an anxiety-inducing or fear-inducing thing uh, and feel like they're in control of it. Uh, and I think horror offers that in a way that really no other genre does. Absolutely. I definitely agree. Now, you're also writing a book. Uh, you have uh, sort of latched on to the term morbid curiosity. In fact, that's your uh, screen name on social media. Uh, explain to us what is morbid curiosity as you see it. As I see it, morbid curiosity is an interest in learning about threats. Now, this is not an overt interest. It's not like, okay, I'm going to go on social media today and try to find out something about a threat. It could be that, but oftentimes it's it's not that. So, for example, enjoying a horror movie, uh, it suggests that someone who enjoys a horror movie is high in this trait called morbid curiosity. Um, they, they They find pleasure and they find fun and they're curious, 
about things that portray threats. Now, uh, let's go back several decades. Uh, back in the 80s, with the advent of VHS, home video, uh, horror movies were getting a really bad rap by the media. As right. The only people that would be interested in them are violent people, perverts, depraved. That has completely changed to where we are now. In your opinion, what was, I doubt there's one single factor, but what were the factors that led up to where we were 30, 40 years ago in regards to horror to where we are today? Well, I don't know if, uh, you know, I don't know if it's changed all that much. So there was, when the new Saw movie came out, uh, Spiral, mm -hmm. there was a New York, I believe it was a New York Post critic that wrote a really scathing review of it saying that people who would go and watch this movie and certainly people who enjoyed it, uh, he called them depraved lunatics. Uh, and this is in, you know, a main, very mainstream, very widely read newspaper. Yeah. I actually responded to that on my Psychology Today blog, showing some actual evidence uh, that people who enjoy horror are not uh, more cold-hearted was the trait that I looked at. So cold-heartedness refers to, um, you know, not caring about someone else's well-being. So if someone is very cold-hearted, they don't care about another person's well-being. Also known as a psychopath. Also kind of like a psychopath. That's yeah. right. Um, and so what I found actually was that horror fans score a bit lower than the average person on cold-heartedness. So they're less cold-hearted mm -hmm. than the average person, which didn't come as a surprise really to me or probably to many horror fans. But I think that there's still a stigma associated with that, partly because, you know, I, I, I sort of understand the, the impulse. Like, oh, how, if you're not a horror fan and you see someone watching, you know, violence uh, or scary things, it's easy to assume that, oh, they must be, you know, deranged um, yeah. or they must be violent. Yeah, and... I think we made the same mistake with video games, right? In the 90s and 2000s where, oh, people who are playing violent video games must be violent, right? But there's been now decades and, and hundreds or even thousands of studies showing that that's just not the case. It's not the case. Uh, not and, the case. And anybody who has spent time at a horror convention or in a community of friends, a group of friends of horror fans, uh, horror fans come in all different shapes, color, and sizes, okay? Uh, you know, a person working on Wall Street is a horror fan. <laughs> a doctors in operating on you in the, in the OR are horror fans. There is, they, they try to put a label on horror fans that is just absolutely not true. You mentioned, you mentioned psychology today, uh, and you are published in there quite a bit. We're going to go over some of, uh, your articles, uh, here now. One of them that's really interesting is the psychological roots of gruesome violence. Uh, I want you to sort of tackle that, summarize it for us, and then put it into the context of horror movies in Hollywood today. Sure. Yeah, so I guess the punchline with that one is that when we see someone commit a gruesome act of violence, we tend to see in our minds that they're larger and stronger. And so that Psychology Today blog was a blog that I wrote as sort of a summary of an academic paper, uh, a study that I conducted, where we looked at, you know, if, if I give you a scenario where someone brutally murdered someone, so if you think, for example, of terrorist organizations and how they, uh, you know, sort of display brutal murders and, and disseminate them, um, if you see that or hear that uh, scenario, how do you perceive this person? So if I ask you to imagine in your mind's eye, you know, what does this person who committed this act look like? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then I give, you know, the other half of the participants a similar scenario, but it was not a brutal murder. It was still, there was still death, um, but it was not gruesome. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we found, you know, we gave people sort of these little, um, little vignettes of, peop of, of men that get larger and stronger, basically. And we asked them, so which one of these body types do you think fits this person? And what we found were that people who um, were in the gruesome condition, who read the gruesome scenario, thought that the perpetrator was much larger and much stronger than the people who were in the regular, the, the regular murder or the regular yeah. kill condition. And so I think what this suggests, you know, if you look at horror villains, they're often just a little bit bigger or a little bit stronger or a little bit faster um, than the average person, right? So Michael Myers, for example, tends to be Hence, who's playing him, but he tends to be larger than like the average person. Yeah. Um, if you look at Leatherface, Leatherface is sort of a big husky guy, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what that does is that sort of triggers these uh, predator detection or predator avoidance mechanisms that are pretty common to to certainly all mammals, right? Um, and if you look at if you look at horror villains uh, or monsters really of any kind, all of their weapons. Uh, are really, they're, they're sort of inefficient, right? I mean, the best way to make, if, if, if you wanted to make a villain who was going to kill a bunch of people, you would give them a gun, right? I mean, that would be a very quick and easy way. Exactly. Uh, and yet there are no horror villains that I know of um, that just have guns, right? They all have something sharp, mm -hmm. something large and sharp, right? So, for example, Freddy has his uh, glove of knives, right? Um, Leatherface has a chainsaw, which is just a blade with a bunch of little blades on it. Uh, most of the other horror villains have some sort of knife, whether it's a butcher knife or uh, sort of more of a machete, right? Uh, they're all large, sharp objects. And even the more classical monsters like werewolves or uh, Dracula all have sharp teeth and sharp claws that resemble uh, predators. Yeah. And I think Wes Craven even mentioned when he made Freddy, he said uh, when he made the glove, he did an interview and he said that he was trying to tap into a primal fear with that, mm -hmm. um, tap into these primal fears that all animals have of, of uh, the weapons that typical predators in the animal kingdom have. Wow. Uh, let's, let's put a scenario in front of you, a hypothetical. Let's okay. say a Hollywood studio wants to bring you on board as a consultant. Okay. Mm -hmm. They're in the middle of writing a horror script and mm -hmm. they want to ask you, how do we make this new villain killer uh, be more fearful, realistic? Would you stick with the stereotype of the deformity of a Jason Voorhees, uh, the bigness of a leather face, or would you bring it to the average guy next door who in real life are the serial killers? Uh, which way would you go? Hmm. I, th I think I would do something a little bit in between. I think that there really is something to the big, sharp weapons. I think that that's, that strikes fear in people more than any other uh, any other type of weapon, right? Mm -hmm. Now you might you might make it something like a unique weapon or some kind of sharp weapon that hasn't been used in other characters, right? That'll give yeah. it a bit of a novelty and a bit of um, like, oh, I need to pay attention to this because I don't know how he's going to use this type of weapon. But as long as it's large and sharp, um, I think that that will that tends to trigger the fear response. Uh, I think there are additional things that you can add onto that. So, leather faces, for example. Uh, the chainsaw is not only large and sharp, but it's loud, right? And loud things tend to scare people. Um, and in particular, humans have something called an auditory looming bias. And this just means that when something, a sound is coming at them, they perceive it to be closer than it really is. So it's kind of like those side mirrors on your car that say objects may be closer than they appear. So we have that 
um, both we have, we have visual ones and audio or auditory ones. And so if something is coming at us, we perceive it to be faster than it actually is coming. And if we hear something that's coming at us, we hear it as closer than it actually is. And this gives us, uh, you know, a bit of a head start to get away. Yeah. Uh, so most animals that are preyed on by some kind of predator have this bias. Yeah, and so I, what, what happens with Leatherface, for example, is that, yeah, you see he's a big guy. Um, you can't see his face, right? So you actually don't know. It's pretty clear that his intentions are not good, but you can't read facial features, right? Mm -hmm. You can't read his facial features. Um, and he has a big chainsaw, a big sharp thing, but it's also loud. So when he chases you, it sounds like he's always closer than he actually is. So if you've ever been in a haunted house, like a haunted attraction, there's always a chainsaw guy, right? Yeah. Um, I do a lot of research and in, in, at a haunted house in Denmark, and there's a man with a big, big man with a pig mask, and he has a chainsaw, and he's the chainsaw guy for that haunt. Um, and it always sounds like he is right behind you, even if he's five or 10 feet away. And part of that is the auditory looming bias. So when you hear that chainsaw coming at you, you perceive it to be right behind you, even if he's further back. I did not. So I think that. I think adding something like that, so that like Leatherface had a, a new twist on the large sharpness, the large sharp claw, right? Or the large sharp teeth. He added a loud sound to it. Um, and I don't think Toby Hooper knew that. Yeah, I don't think know, he did no. that on purpose. <laughs> no, but it but it ended up working, right? And I don't know if another I don't know of another horror villain that has a loud weapon. Maybe because there aren't a lot of yeah weapons. Yeah. But you could sort of I guess you could come up with one. Um, so yeah, I would try to put I would try to put something um, a slight twist on an older thing. So there's a concept in psychology called minimally counterintuitiveness, and so that just means that. If something is similar to what we've seen, but just slightly different, we tend to pay a lot more attention to it. If it's very different, like completely different, we might not pay as much attention to it. If, if it's exactly like we've seen before, so you know, butcher and a regular butcher knife, we may not be as attentive to it. But if it's like something we've seen before with a with a twist, you can think of like a unicorn as an example. Mm -hmm. You know, people are sort of drawn to those because they look like a horse, but they have a horn, yeah. right? And so if you could find a way to do something like that with a horror villain, um, you're going to garner a lot of interest, especially in teaser trailers and things like that. Absolutely. Now, in horror, there are a lot of subgenres, okay? You've got the slasher, slasher blood, mm -hmm. gore movies. Then mm -hmm. you have the psychological, supernatural films. For me, mm -hmm. being a lifelong horror fan, I enjoy all different horror films. But what I enjoy the most is the psychological paranormal movies because they actually scare me uh, the right. the circumstances could possibly be real as right. opposed to the blood guts and splatter and all that uh in your studies of horror fans and what they watch and what they're attracted to do you find that people want to watch something that is more realistic and really scares them to the core or are they in it for the pure entertainment of watching the gore? I think there are, that's a good question, but there are a lot of different ways to answer that. So I'll go, I'll go into some of them and then maybe we can uh, mm -hmm. pick which one is more interesting to talk about. So I've actually done some studies uh, that are not published yet, but um, asking people, asking horror fans, you know, which, which or even non-horror fans as well, which of these uh, types of movies would you find the scariest? And you're right, it's psychological horror is what people find the scariest, presumably because um, it, it could happen, happen, right? Yeah. The person next door, your neighbor could be a psychopath, right? Um, if you ask kids, kids are gonna tell you that the monster ones are the scariest, right? Because kids don't have a clear concept of, of fantasy, of those being, you know, 
to fantasy. them, monsters are real. Monsters are animals, right? Yeah. And that's actually so. That's I mean, that's how the that's how the monster stories originated. Um, you know, centuries and centuries ago, through oral storytelling, was mm-hmm. uh, you take it actually t- it actually uses the minimally counterintuitive concept. So it takes an animal, um, makes it larger, makes it stronger, gives it bigger claws, bigger teeth, uh, maybe um, puts it in a place where you shouldn't go, uh, maybe a dark cave, right? The big monster lives in a dark cave. Um, and those stories can help, you know, long ago would help teach kids where to not go, right? It's a good way because it attracts their attention. It's hard, it's hard to get a kid to sort of listen to instructions, right? So if you just say, don't go in the cave, the kid's going to go in the cave. But if you say that there's... Uh, a giant dragon in the cave and the dragon will eat you if you go in the cave the kid's not going to go in the cave mm-hmm. right um so yeah i think that's that's uh that's one reason uh, i don't know if you want to discuss further from that or well let's uh let me throw this aspect to you my wife hates horror okay, okay. and uh you know we she knows i'm a big horror fan she's not uh when we sit down and in the beginning part of our marriage, we've been married 22 years now. She's, you know, she would tell me she doesn't like to watch anything disturbing. So that means more like the, the psychological, if it's a mm-hmm. horror comedy with blood, splat, that's fun. She doesn't get to, but if it's disturbing, it, it bothers her, you know, mm-hmm. it, it really scares uh, people. Now, do you think people who are not horror fans, do you think they tend not to like horror uh, because of it could be real as opposed to just enjoying it as yeah. fiction entertainment? I think that some some uh, people who don't like horror don't like horror because they haven't seen horror movies before. I think that's a pretty common thing I run into. I think other people have tried it and it's just not their, not their thing for mm-hmm. one reason or another. Um, I don't know if it's necessary for, for some people. Sure. It's definitely because they know if they watch it, they'll have nightmares, yeah. um, for whatever reason, they're a bit more sensitive to, uh, you know, stimuli that are frightening or anxiety inducing. But it, interestingly, it's, it's not the case that, or it doesn't seem to be the case that, uh, people who watch horror movies have low anxiety or low neuroticism. So what some really interesting stuff that I've found that sort of surprised me at first was that horror fans, uh, tend to be a bit more anxious than the average person. They tend to be a little bit more anxious. Now this varies depending on subgenre and a lot of other things. Um, but it was interesting to me that you know people who are more prone to feeling anxious or feeling afraid are more likely to seek out movies that make them feel anxious and afraid, right? Wow. And so that kind of got me on that line of thinking, well, maybe they're using this as a, as a distraction, but also as a way to sort of conquer their anxieties or conquer their fear and feel like they're sort of in control uh, when they are feeling anxious. Um, that's really, I'm going to pause you right there for a second. I am diagnosed by a psychologist OCD, which which, is an anxiety, which is an anxiety disorder. And I'm not talking about OCD. Uh, I'm anal about the cups being in a certain, but I mean, real OCD OCD is very different. Real OCD is described as intrusive, irrational thoughts. And that was me. And horror for me has always been a distraction. Yeah. Uh, it's always been a way to relieve, calm, soothe any anxieties. It's my escape yeah. from the world of anxiety. Why? I mean, do you see there's a direct relation to people with who suffer 
I, I think everyone suffers anxiety to some level of degree. It's part of what keeps us alive. It's our keeps us motivated. Yeah, right? you would never be motivated. Yeah. yeah, it's our fight or flight response. Yeah. Uh, so everyone has anxiety, but for the people who have a little bit higher than average anxiety, like myself, uh, why does horror soothe them? Why does that lessen the anxiety? Yeah, so I, I did write a, a site. So I, I did. I wrote a big, long academic theory paper on this with a clinical psychologist, and then I went and wrote a more digestible one on psychology today. Um, and I think what's going on is that, okay, so let's say you're sitting at home and had a rough week. You're ruminating, you know, really hard about something. Maybe it's something minor. Probably it's something minor, right? But you're sitting at home. You're feeling anxious. You're ruminating. Maybe you have generalized anxiety, and you don't really know why you're ruminating or even what you're you know, feeling anxious about, but you can feel yourself getting tense. So you could turn on a TV show, you turn on, let's say like a drama or a comedy, um, something, let's say lighthearted because mm -hmm. you're feeling anxious, right? The problem with that is that it's difficult to compete with anxious feelings. So if, um, if I'm feeling threatened by something, right, which is what anxiety is, mm -hmm. then I need something threatening to distract me. Right, because something non-threatening is is it's really hard for that to be a strong enough stimulus to pull you away, to pull you out of your thoughts. And so, what horror does, sort of, uh, again, it sounds counterintuitive, but it, it sort of works, is that because it, because horror is scary, and because you're anxious, you're maybe a little more afraid of horror than the average person too. Not you specifically, but yeah, I you know. generally, right? Um, and so, what it does is it, it draws you in. It it does the same thing that those minimally counterintuitive. Uh, objects do, or those big sharp claws do, they draw your eyes first, at least, right? Yeah. So even if you're not afraid, it still draws your attention, even if you feel perfectly fine with it. Yeah. But then what that does is that sort of sucks you into the story, right? Now you're watching the movie, now you're sucked into the story, now you're waiting for that monster to, you know, make his appearance. And so what that does, so, so far, all we've done is just change the source of your anxiety, which doesn't really do a lot, still feeling anxious, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're feeling anxious about something uh, on a TV screen which is a lot more manageable than feeling anxious or ruminating about something you can't control. Yeah. So on a, if I'm feeling, if I'm sitting in the dark watching, uh, you know, Halloween kills, I'm feeling really anxious. Uh, I might turn on the light, right. That'll make it a little less scary for me. Mm -hmm. I might turn the volume down, uh, turn the surround sound off. Um, I might pause the movie at certain times. Right. And so it gives me a lot of control over the source of my anxiety. Whereas in the real world, you don't really have that control typically. Exactly. Um, and so what, so what it does is it kind of, it transfers the source of your anxiety to something fictional, which then you have more control over. And of course, 90 minutes later, uh, it ends, right? And in the case of Halloween, I guess it doesn't, it never ends, it seems like, but there isn't, there isn't an end to the movie, right? Um, and so the monster goes away, your threat response tends to go down, and you have a more relaxing, um, what's called parasympathetic response, which is the relaxation response that you get when something threatening or stressful goes away. That is so interesting. Now, you have another article um, called The Three Key Traits of Morbid Curiosity. <laughs> so what are the three key traits to basically horror fans? Yeah, I probably simplified that for the title. There are a lot of a lot of traits that go into that. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of different kinds of horror fans, right? The guy on Wall Street, and the guy you meet at the grocery store might both be horror fans. Um, and also women too. Let's not. Uh, yeah, not, actually, that's, a, that's in a, fact, there probably more women horror fans than men for certain genres. Yeah, and actually, one thing I found that I think people are sometimes surprised by that is that there really isn't big difference in men and no. women for how much they enjoy horror. Yeah. Some men men do tend to gravitate towards 
uh, or at least enjoy the sort of more vi like physically violent uh, horror movies a bit more than women, or or women enjoy them a bit less. Action type horror. Type, yeah, yeah, more action, but that's true of exactly that's true of action movies too. It's true of violent sports, um, and when it comes to psychological horror, supernatural, it's it's much more uh, even, and sometimes even in some of the studies I've done, it's been a slight uh, slight skew towards women enjoying yeah. them more. Um, so, but the three the three key traits, or at least some key traits, that horror fans share. So obviously one of them is that they score very high in morbid curiosity, uh, which I don't mention in the article because I think I'm talking about in that one. So I should make a distinction here. Uh, so morbid curiosity is a trait you have, right? And morbid curiosity makes you seek out uh, threatening things, often through fiction, right? So when I when I talk about horror fans, I'm talking about a specific sort of expression, you know, expressing your morbid curiosity. Let me let me see if this fits the. Stephen King book and movie Stand By Me, which is about mm -hmm. kids trekking out to see a dead body. Is that mm -hmm. what you would describe? That's more of a yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So it tends to be, you know, we tend to, the best way to investigate a threat is when you don't have to be up close and personal with it. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Well, you let someone else tell you about it or you watch it on a movie, right? Um, and again, it's not that you're going into a horror movie thinking, okay, I'm going to learn how to escape Michael Myers, right? maybe particular cases where you are thinking that, but in most cases you're going in to be entertained. But the reason you're entertained is because it draws you in, right? Yeah. Because it it uh, draws you in, it lets you control your anxiety and then it goes away. Yeah. Um, but so, some of the key traits, so rebelliousness was a big one, which is not too surprising. Um, that's one that, you know, may or may not, uh, it, it may be that that one is time dependent, right? So in the US, horror movies are, a bit taboo, right? They're sort of seen as a bit taboo mm -hmm. still. Um, and so of course, people who are more rebellious, people who like horror movies are going to be more rebellious, right? Mm -hmm. More willing to break social norms. Um, it doesn't mean that you're antisocial. It doesn't mean anything like that. It just means that you're willing to sort of break social norms. Yeah. Uh, another one that horror fans and morbidly curious people tend to score pretty high on is social curiosity. So they're very interested in people very interested in learning about people. And I think this really shines in the psychological horror, right? You want to know why the killer is doing what he's doing. I think that's true for, for most, even slashers, right? Maybe even particularly slashers. Yeah. Uh, why does Michael Myers kill? Why does Leatherface kill people, right? Why does, you know, it, it's, I think that's true of almost any monster is you want to, you want to understand why they're doing it. Why is Freddy killing people? And usually there is a backstory that gives you that, right? Except for um, Michael. Except for Michael, yeah. <laughs> I was still waiting so I for guess that one. The, yeah, I guess there's the what the re, the Rob Zombie remake gives a, yeah, a background. Yeah, that delves in his background. True. Some people didn't like that. I think. I think they liked not having a, an answer for yeah. that. Um, yeah. So I think that you know they're very socially curious, and whenever someone does something, um, you know, if you see someone do something violent, uh, your first instinct is to wonder, well, why did they do that? You know, was it? Is it because they are they are a violent person? Were they defending themselves? Were they trying to get something they wanted? Um, yeah, so so socially socially curious rebels are sort of the uh, two of the key traits, and the third one I think it's been a while since I wrote that. The third one I think was uh, that they're not afraid of death. So there's this trait called um, animal disgust, right? And this is the idea that when we see something gross, it sort of reminds us that in particular, like body injuries, it reminds us that we're very mortal and mm -hmm. we're going to die someday, right? So for people who have high sensitivity to that, obviously horror movies are not a very good fit for them. 
because there's a lot of there's a lot of mortality reminders <laughs> in oh, horror yeah. movies. Uh, and so people who, who are less sensitive to reminders that, you know, they're just human uh, tend to be horror fans. That makes perfect sense. Now, let's talk about a subgenre that is really just now starting to become more and more. And that's cannibalism. OK, it's not taboo just in the United States. It's taboo all over the world. Yeah. And filmmakers throughout the years have stayed away from it. Uh, a few have gone there. I just yeah. saw a movie that just came out on Hulu called Fresh. Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I I've it's heard a good great about it. movie. It is about cannibalism. Yeah. So more people are going there now, and more filmmakers are going there now because they will always have that shock and awe factor. Yes. What are your feelings about cannibal movies and their taboo? Um, so, I mean, obviously humans, you know, humans have engaged in cannibalism in the past, you know, whether that's uh, ritualistic cannibalism, survival. so it could be survival. So if you're playing crashes on the side of the mountain and you're stuck there for weeks, right? Yeah. Um, but generally you're right. Cannibalism is a, is a taboo thing. Um, and there are, you know, multiple reasons for that. Some of them have to do with, um, it does like your your empathy kicks in and it's difficult for you to eat something that you know is a, a sentient being, right? Exactly. I think this is the same reason that some people, for example, are vegetarian because they see animals as having kind of a consciousness and, and yep. that turns them off, right? Um, there's also the fact that if you eat uh, like the human brain, for example, you can get prion diseases that are very bad for you and will kill you, right? Um, and so it's, it's pretty clear why it's a, a taboo um i think that like you said the can cannibal movies are not very common and they come out just often enough to pique people's interest yeah. because people sort of forget about them yeah. uh so there was cannibal holocaust obviously was i don't know if it was the first one but it was certainly probably the earliest oh, yeah. big hit right and then there was the eli roth sort of remake of that i forget the name of it um me too i i don't remember but green, oh a green inferno green inferno. oh yes yes yeah and it was, was it was sort of a good. Yeah, it was sort of a conceptual remake, not a shot for shot, but like yeah. a conceptual remake of Cannibal Holocaust. Um, yeah, and so I think those kinds of movies, you know, trigger something that we're not familiar with. At least, you know, we know what cannibalism is, but we don't know what is a cannibal like, right? Yeah. Um, I think that you do see some hints at cannibalism in certain horror, vil uh, horror villains. So, for example, like Leatherface, Chainsaw Massacre, there's maybe some cannibalism going on. Some um, the fireflies from uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. There's maybe some cannibal, and they mm -hmm. kind of hint at it. Yeah. But most of them don't put it up close and in your face. And I think the reason that that tends to be, you know, I think filmmakers tend to shy away from it is that it does it does turn a lot of people off, right? Because if you have audience members who are sort of sensitive to disgust, that's not going to be something that they want to see. Exactly. Exactly. But I think that the fact that they come out, you know, a big one comes out every decade or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, sort of keeps people's interest. And talking about movies that come out every now and then, uh, one of those that comes directly to mind, and you mentioned Eli Roth, is Hostel. I yeah. assume you've seen Hostel. Hostel yeah. shocked everybody that yeah. somebody's willing to pay to be closed in a room where they can do whatever they want to another human being, torture them, kill them any way they want. Uh, there is a little bit of cannibalism in there, or a hint of, especially in the second movie. 
-hmm. So Eli Roth really, I mean, he's a master at capturing the shock and awe factor. Now, when it comes to cinema and coming up with an idea like Hostel that has never been done before, uh, what kind, how does that play on the audience? Uh, just mm-hmm. having something completely unique and new in the horror realm. I think Hostel and also to some extent, maybe the first Saw movie, mm-hmm. um, they both came out around 2001. Is that right? Yeah. 2002, maybe 2002. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was right around the time that there were news reports about uh, torture uh, at Guantanamo Bay. Yeah. And so the public was sort of getting this, these hints that the U.S. was was torturing people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I don't I don't think that's why Eli Roth no. uh, made Hostile, right? Maybe he was inspired by that. I have no idea. Um, but presumably he had the idea before that it happened. Yeah. It was sort of just, you know, coincidence that this came out right after these reports started coming out. And I think one reason that it was so interesting to people is that they just heard that this is a real thing that could happen. So kind of like you were talking about, um psychological horror is scariest to you because it could happen right yeah. i think something similar happened in that moment with hostile um people were you know probably if you'd ask people in 2000 does the u.s torture people and they would say like no, no. you know people are not they're not torturing prisoners no. uh no. but in 2001 2002 people are saying yeah obviously they torture prisoners and it, it's it was like really graphic right some of the news reports and so i think hostile gave people a way to I don't want to say process that, but to, to understand that, like, what is that like? Um, and I think it probably made them, you know, empathize with, with people that we would be enemies with in, in many cases uh, a bit more because it, it was so gruesome and it was so graphic. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard for us to imagine, for example, what is torture like, but if it's put in front of you uh, in the form of a movie, it's much easier for you to kind of see what that might be like. Absolutely. Uh- uh, one last question before we go. I can't believe the time has flown so fast. Now, we know there are fans out there, not just in horror, in all genres, that have a hard time distinguishing between character and actor. I've, mm-hmm. I just want to ask you this. Uh, we know that when we watch a movie, that is an actor getting paid to do a job. And if they're playing a bad guy and you and the movie really hating them. They did a great job at their, you know, at their work. Yeah. Uh, but why are some people where we see these actors getting threats in real life because they can't distinguish between character and actor? What in the human brain does not click in and say this character that you love so much or this character that you hate so much is just playing a role? That's not yeah. who they really are. Yeah, I think, I mean, I hadn't heard that people were getting death threats, but it, oh, doesn't, yeah, you know, yeah. it doesn't surprise me that, yeah. that villains would sometimes get those. Um, I, you know, one, I think, first I want to say, that I think like most people are able to distinguish that pretty clearly. Yeah. Uh, but in cases where it doesn't, you know, one thing that might be going on is that uh, people are saying, well, how could you even take a role like that? Like, why would you even take a role where you have to, you know, play a torturer? Why would you, why would you, um, fictionalize that yeah and i think that the answer i don't have a good answer you know the reason is that well it's a movie and it shows you something that you may not see right it doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that that person enjoyed it it doesn't mean that that person only wants to play torturers right yeah it means that they're an actor and if they're playing a torturer they might be a pretty good actor because it's probably really difficult to do that um 
But I think it's something similar to what you see with defense attorneys, for example. So if you have um, a real psychopath that really killed a bunch of people, he still gets a defense attorney and the defense attorney still has to do their job. And their job is to show to the best of their ability that you know he shouldn't be given the death penalty. Um, and I think defense attorneys probably get a lot of death threats, I'm sure, uh, especially high profile cases, right? Um, and I, I, you know, maybe there's some differences between those two situations, but I see them as kind of similar in that this person is doing their job. Um, and in the case of the actor, I mean, they are literally faking it, right? And <laughs> they're yeah. not, you know, uh, the defense attorney really is trying to get their, their client off, but the, the actor is really faking it. But I think that psychologically something similar is going on. Like, how could you, how could you defend this, right? Yeah. How could you defend the use of torture? And they're, they're not doing that, but I think that that's probably what, uh, what's happening. There have been some great movies uh, in regards to Psychopath. A movie that really jumps out to me is called The House That Jack Built with Matt Dillon. I haven't uh, seen it yet. But yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Uh, there's a scene where he's standing in front of a mirror and pictures of people displaying human emotions. Because a mm. true psychopath, I guess that part of the brain that allows them to feel love, uh, you know, empathy, sympathy, the whole mm. nine, it's just it's dark they don't know yeah. how to love and whatnot uh, and i'm really fascinated with the idea of psychopaths in your line of work uh have you or do you plan on studying real psychopaths and their relation to how they are shown in hollywood uh i would love to do that it, it's 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 sort of hard because typically the only time you find clinical psychopaths are in prison. And that's mm -hmm. not because that's the only place they are. That's because they get tested in prison. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a very lengthy clinic, you know, the difference between a lot of the work I do and the work that like, let's say a forensic psychologist at a prison would do is the forensic psychologist would do very in-depth interviews, um, go through their background, uh, give them a whole range of personality tests over the course of maybe even a few days or weeks. Um, the stuff that I do, I tend to study subclinical traits, um, mostly because it's just, it's more time efficient, right? And you yeah. can get a really good handle on how a trait works by studying subclinical traits. I think it would be really interesting to study real psychopaths, right? I think that would be fascinating. Um, so maybe eventually, um, one thing, so I, I do, I have studied psychopathy and I am working on some studies right now looking at um, psychopathy, but subclinical psychopathy. Uh, one of the interesting things that, that I found recently that uh, is brand new, so it hasn't been published yet, I'm still writing up the paper with my colleagues, is that, so there are these series of traits called the dark, the dark triad or dark personality traits, like psychopathy, Machiavellianism, narcissism. These are all traits that everyone has to some degree or another, especially mm -hmm. subclinically. Like everyone has, nobody is a zero on those, right? Yeah. Um, and horror fans tend to score fairly high in them. Not, not clinical high, but like higher than average, right? Which was when interesting you, When to you me say because... high, do you mean high as being in a psychopath or high as not being in the psychopath? High high on all of them. Oh. Sub, again, subclinically, but high on all of them. So I, I found that weird because other studies that I'd done had showed that, you know, for example, they're less cold-hearted. So how could this be? So what I did was we studied um, the dark triad and uh, some me different measures of empathy in, in horror fans um, and in morbidly curious people. And what we found was that, you know, traditionally psychology has said you either have dark traits, if you, you either have dark traits or you don't, you know, you sort of score high on them or you score lower on them. Um, if you score high on them, 
you score very low on empathy regardless, like in all cases. Mm -hmm. And actually what I found is that there, there seem to be two different kinds of people who score high on dark traits. There are the traditional dark personalities. They score high on dark traits and very low on empathy. Um, and then we found a new sort of group of people uh, who scored high on dark traits, but also high on empathy. Yeah. which we're still trying to sort through how that works because it kind of overturns how we think about psycho yeah. people who score high in psychopathy, right? And I think the idea is that in clinical psychopathy, which is which is typically present from birth, right? It's a it's like you said, it's a it's dark, right? Yeah. There's um there's something broken. It's a physical problem, yeah. It's a phys yeah, it's a physical, it's a neuro, it's a neuroanatomical issue. Mm -hmm. Um they are they do lack empathy because they literally lack the ability to have those areas of the brain uh, connect, yeah. right? What happens in subclinical traits is that you don't you don't have an inability to do that. You just sort of there's natural variation, just like there is in every trait. And so in subclinical populations, it seems like it's actually possible for people to have higher than average dark traits, but also have higher than average empathy. Hmm. And what was really interesting is that the people who scored high in that tended to be morbidly curious. I don't have a measure of horror fandom, but yeah. morbidly curious people tend to be horror fans, right? And so what I think is going on is that. One reason they might be drawn to um, sort of scary or, or violent films uh, is because, you know, the dark triad might be sort of pushing them that way. Because dark personalities, people who score high in the dark triad, for example, but score low in empathy, they also tend to be more morbidly curious, but kind of in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and, and so what's really what was really interesting to me was that there was this separate group that was very empathetic, but also scored higher than average on these dark traits. Um, and those people tended to be like I said, very morbidly curious. And so I think it was interesting because it still dispelled this idea that, you know, you can uh, you can still be a horror fan and still be highly empathetic, more empathetic than the average person even. Would you say that's where the term sociopath, now a lot of people use psychopath and sociopath interchangeably, but they're not. Mm -hmm. They're two different things, aren't they? Could, sort of. I mean, yes. the way I understand it, because I really try to get an answer, Mm -hmm. Basically, the way I understood it is sociopaths, as compared to psychopaths, have a little bit more empathy. Hmm. I mean, do you, first of all, do you, is there a difference in your mind or not? So, at least in, uh, in, in the academic research, uh, they tend to only say psychopaths. So there is no, they don't use so, uh, sociopath as like, as a, individual difference yeah. i know that um a lot of people sort of colloquially uh will say okay a psychopath is someone who's like this from birth and a sociopath is someone who's like this because of what's happened to them now i, I don't doubt that those two groups exist i don't know if one of them is it's, it's nature versus nurture yeah yeah so that that's the idea right um and i think you know certainly that exists right that's where the socio of sociopath yeah. comes from at least in its common common use in academia they tend to just look at psychopathy there is no like i said there is no measure of sociopathy because they're interested in sort of outcomes yeah. but i do think i mean certainly there are people who uh are psychopaths because neurologically there's they don't have you know the connections that they need to have um and there are certainly people who uh are sociopaths like you're what you're talking about where they've experienced something really terrible especially when they were young and that's made them kind of into who they are yeah. uh, and they wouldn't have ended up that way if they hadn't experienced that so i do think that those two different populations exist i think that you'll have trouble finding research on sociopaths um 
And it's proper. all now been put under the label of anti-social personality. Anti-social personality. That's right. That's now, right. you have a book coming out. Uh, what's it called? And when do you think it'll be out? So it's still pretty early in the writing process. It doesn't come out until 2023. Um, so the title is also still in flux. So if you have good ideas for a title, feel free to send them to me. But the book is about, uh, right now, it's, it's, it's sort of a preliminary title. It's called... Uh, Morbid Curiosity, the science behind why we're fascinated with the mysterious and the macabre. Awesome. awesome. Uh, yeah, and it's just going to be about uh, sort of my theoretical approach to morbid curiosity, what it is. There'll be, we'll talk a lot about horror fans and different personality traits, what kind of what we talked about here. Um, I'll talk about kids and like whether or not kids should, uh, whether or not kids do and whether or not they should engage in sort of scary play or horror. Um, what it, how it has to do with clinical manifestations of anxiety and depression. Uh, so it'll go through a lot of different stuff about morbid curiosity. And but horror horror fans will sort of be a, my central example of people who are morbidly curious. Awesome, Colton. I want to thank you so much. This has been a fascinating forty five minutes. Uh, we could go on for hours. <laughs> it's been great. I think it's amazing that you chose this field to study. It's needed uh, to. Just because, like you said, there's an absence. There's a big void yeah. on something that's never been studied. Uh, good luck in getting your PhD. I know that is no small feat. My wife, I've seen my wife go through and get her doctorate. Uh, so I know it's a lot of work. I want to wish you congratulations ahead of time. But, you know, you have so much to look forward to. Thank you for coming on here. Any final thoughts you want to share before we go? Uh, no, I think, you know, just, uh, probably your, you know, the people that listen to your show, uh, already know that, uh, they shouldn't, you know, judge, judge the horror fans yeah. by what they watch. Right. Um, there's a lot of nuance going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to thank our viewers for tuning in live and those who will watch this later on again, thank you to our guest Colton Scrivener until next time, guys, be safe on behalf of Colton and myself, stay walking. Good night.